Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Very excited about today's show. Today, I'll be joined by Michael Brito, author of the brand new book, Your Brand, The Next Media Company, and we're going to talk about how businesses can become media outlets. I'll also answer a caller question about whether it makes more sense to interact with your audience as a person or to do it as a business. As a matter of fact, let's transition over to that question right now. Deep from within a remote jungle village, here's this week's social media question. Hi, Michael. This is Jose Melgar, a graphic designer based in Guatemala, Central America. I've really enjoyed your podcast since I found your website the other day. And I'm about to launch my website, which is not myname.com, but it's a commercial name.com, you know. And I see a lot of my colleagues using Facebook to promote themselves as freelancers and at the same time I've seen a lot of local businesses using Twitter but trying to force feed you their products or services and while I'm definitely thinking about using social networks to to promote my services my question is should I address my audience as Proyecta Print you know my business name or as Jose Melgar In other words, should I interact with my audience as a business or as a person? Thank you. Jose, that's a wonderful question. And that's the very question that I struggled with when I started Social Media Examiner. Um, I I had a Twitter account, uh, which is Mike underscore Stelzner. And I was struggling as to whether I should set up another Twitter account for the brand, Social Media Examiner. And the exact same thing was the situation with Facebook. I had a personal profile and I needed to decide whether I wanted to do one for the business as well. Here's my thoughts on this. Since you have a business that transcends Jose, the graphics designer, and it's really not just about you, but it's about your business, I strongly recommend you consider doing both. And and here's why. On your business Twitter account, and on your business Facebook account. And by the way, that's what we did at Social Media Examiner. On those pages, you can focus on the brand, the business, and particular things that your prospects and clientele may find very interesting. On the personal profile, you can do a little bit of both. Sometimes people want to know the man behind the brand. Sometimes people want to connect with you as a human, and it's very hard to connect with a brand but it's very easy to connect with a person. And you can even cross leverage between these two. For example, on our SM Examiner Twitter account, I always retweet it on my personal account. 
and I have, I don't know how many followers on each one, like a hundred plus thousand on one and 60 or 70,000 on the other. And, uh, having that personal Facebook account and that personal Twitter account allows me to talk about the kinds of things I would never feel comfortable talking about on the business account. And it just does allow people to get attracted to me as a person. So I think having both is more work, but I think it's worth the work if your business is not just all about you as the brand, but really it's about a business that transcends you as a human. So I hope you found that a little bit helpful. If you have a question that you would like to submit for possible consideration on this show, visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash voicemail. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. And with that, let's transition over to today's interview with Michael Brito. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. I'm very excited to be joined today by Michael Brito. If you don't know who Michael is, he's the author of Smart Business, Social Business, and his latest book, literally coming out in just a few days, is Your Brand, The Next Media Company. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. So today, Michael and I are going to explore how any business can become a major media outlet. So, Michael, let's start with the first question that's in my mind, and I'm sure in the minds of many people listening right now, is why should a brand of any size consider becoming, quote-unquote, the media? Sure. Well, I mean, if you think about historically, the media has always captured the attention of consumers, Uh, whether it's broadcast TV, the internet. uh, Media companies do a really good job at creating content, and that's how brands need to start thinking. Well, let, let's talk through this a little bit because uh, when I think of the media, I think of, you know, a magazine, a big magazine like, I don't know, Fast Company or a television network like ABC. And let's just start by dissecting a little bit about what's what's the benefit of actually these media outlets. I mean, let's just start there so brands can understand the power of what they can have in their hands. What is it about media that is so powerful and why do businesses all desire to get in front of it? You brought up a really great question, Mike. And if you think about traditional media companies like Condé Nast, right, they have a very diverse story and narrative, whether it's golf or weddings or travel, they have a consistent story that's shared across paid, earned, and owned media. And also, in some cases, magazines. And so um, if you think about media and you really dissect what they're trying to do is they're storytellers, right? If you're interested in the news, you might put on CNN because you want to know what the latest in news is. If you're interested in sports, you're going to put it on Sports Center because they have a diverse narrative around sports. And so brands need to figure out, number one, what is the story that they want to, want to tell and then figure out how they can tell that story across not just social, because social certainly is what's happening today, but across every form of, of, of uh, the customer experience. And that includes paid advertising. That includes magazines, as you just said. That includes advertising, if you will. There's so many customer touch points and media companies 
are really good at having a very consistent story across each of those touch points. For example, CNN, right? They, their narrative, their story is the news. It's what's happening in Washington. It's what's happening in other countries. It's what's happening with elections. And so if you go to each one of the, their outlets, whether it be you know, their Twitter feed or their Facebook page or CNN.com or what they're showing on cable, it's all very consistent. Now, that's certainly a very elementary point of view, but it's, it's a, a lesson that brands, large and small, really need to adopt because most aren't necessarily telling that consistent story um, across every customer touchpoint. Now, Michael, one of the things that, uh, that you said is these media outlets, what they seem to share in common is their ability to share stories. And I was um, on a flight back from a conference and I picked up a copy of Fast Company in the airport and I started absorbing it and loving it because really all it was doing, frankly, was just sharing all sorts of stories of interesting companies and what they were doing. For example, there was a story about how the designer guy at Apple, you know, goes about thinking about what he's doing and how the guy at uh, Foursquare is thinking about redoing the company. And it was when you really dissected it, all it was at its core was a bunch of journalists sent out to do a story and to present a story in a really cool way that everybody loved. And then, of course, there's a bunch of other stuff in there wrapped with advertising and wrapped with a cover. And and I love it. And, you know, when if you were a fast company and you were able to dig these stories, if you will, or tell these stories, and you had as many people subscribing to this content, what you can do with that is pretty amazing. And I mm-hmm. think that if we just think about that at a very simple level here, you know, this can represent an opportunity that's not nearly as challenging as it appears to brands. What do you think? That's completely true. I mean, if you think about publications like Forbes, right? Forbes.com has been online since 1995. Most people don't know that. And they have their, their magazine that they, that they you know, produce once a month that talks about investments and, and business and marketing. But it wasn't until about three or four years ago when Forbes really started to, to capture the attention of, of, of people like me, right? And so and, and what happened was, was that they opened the door to find contributors, right? So they have several hundred um, people who write for Forbes, and these people aren't on staff. They are they're contributor, they're contributing writers. They're building their own brands. They're establishing thought leadership. And now I go to my Twitter feed, and what do I see? I see content shared from Forbes. I see content on my Facebook feed. I, when I Google content, I see Forbes articles. And by the way, I can say the same thing about Social Media Examiner. And you didn't ask me to say, to say that, Mike, it's, but it's true. But, but if you think about just the power that brands have, right? they have, in some cases, 10 employees or maybe a half a million employees like IBM. These are all potential contributors to tell very effective, very trusted brand stories, right? Whatever the brand is about, whatever the business model is. If it's enterprise software, it's enterprise software. If it's an energy drink like Red Bull, then so be it. Brands need to realize it's not that complicated. They just need to figure out the right operational framework to make it come to life. You know, so many businesses that have been around for a long time have been essentially programmed, if you will, or taught 
maybe, and they need to be untaught that in order to be successful, you must go down the route that everyone else has gone down, right? Which is to um, schmooze up with the power brokers that control radio, television, <laughs> you know, these kinds of mediums. But in reality, content marketing and social media have made that so that any business of any size can do this kind of stuff. And I think it's really an incredible opportunity. And with that, I want to explore with you a little bit, maybe a few examples, because I'm sure some people listening right now are like, okay, that sounds really interesting what you're doing with with Forbes or, or maybe Social Media Examiner, but we don't think like that. So mm-hmm. let's hear a couple of examples of businesses that are actually be, have become a media outlet and, and, and let's explore what they're doing. Sure. Well, I have three examples, one in a the, in the consumer space, one in the B2B space, and one in the small business space. So let's, let's talk first about the consumer space. And I think we can all agree that Red Bull is a media company and they have a very diverse narrative and it's not about energy drinks. It's about epic events. It's about empowerment. It's about being able to do anything that you want to do uh, with, with the right motivation and the right drive. Um, and if you think about like what Red Bull has been able to accomplish over the last several years and look at what they're doing across all of their channels, it's a very consistent narrative. In fact, Red Bull has internally their own agency, which is their media agency. They don't need to hire uh, firms like Edelman or you know, 360i or what have you to help them tell stories. They have an in-house team of producers and creative directors and art directors and strategists who are creating compelling content day in and day out with a consistent message of Red Bull gives you wings to do anything you want to do. Let's explore that a little bit because I know they have a record label and I only knew that because someone from their record label came to social media marketing world. But what, what are some of the things that they're doing just for folks that may not be familiar? Sure. I mean, well, I mean, they're helping people jump out of space is one, you know, the, the, yep. the, um, the that was an incredible media thing for them, right? They had a guy right. up in like the clouds or whatever, dive down, right? And exactly. And do a and world record. Totally. And what's interesting about that is anytime anyone ever talked about space travel, for months after that event, Red Bull was always a part of the conversation. Um, if you watch snowboarding, right, and, they, and typically you know, Red Bull will sponsor things like the X Games and other events, but when they, they don't just sponsor events. They actually build you know, snowboard or snow half pipes for Sean White, which is the professional snowboarder. So, so they do things – they don't do things – Haphazardly, they go in and they put 150 percent, um, and they tell that story through visual content, through long form content, which I think is an opportunity that many brands fail to to capitalize on, um, and and it's consistent through paid, earned, and owned media. Okay, so you mentioned there were two others. The other large firm is a company I used to work for. In fact, I worked there when you and I first met. Mike was Intel. And I can speak from experience that Intel, very several years ago, realized an opportunity. And that opportunity was that there were several hundred people, if not thousand people, within the walls of Intel, employees who were really smart, who were passionate about Intel's products, and who were good communicators. And for years, when I worked there, it was about training, and it was about governance and social media policies. Well, that infrastructure, that foundation today 
now empowers and enables employees from all different types of disciplines, from marketing to PR to, to product management to engineering, to tell brand stories within their own micro-communities. So it, today we refer to it as brand journalism, right? It's more than just retweeting at Intel on Twitter. It's more than just sharing a, a status update from the Facebook page. It's actual stories coming from behind the firewall that is influencing people about Intel. Okay, so let's explore that a little bit. You call that brand journalism. So what kind of people that are listening right now that have employees might be thinking, okay, well, hmm, what is brand journalism and what does that entail? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Brand journalism is really a, a way, and if you, if you take the fundamentals of journalism, right, then it, which, is, which is storytelling, objective storytelling, and you apply it to brand marketing or brand initiatives, it's simply employees who are passionate about the brand who are simply telling stories, tweeting, blogging, sharing content on all of the social networks, Instagram, Vine, what have you, about their experiences working for the organization, about the cool things that they're working on, if they're, if they're building new products or innovating new processes. And, and the, the end result of that is that consumers like you and I, we trust people like ourselves. We trust employees of a company. Um, so there's a huge opportunity, and Intel is capitalizing on that, to enable employees to, to become brand journalists or, quote-unquote, brand advocates um, and, and influence their peers, uh, when, especially when it comes time to purchase. You know, what I think about when I think about this a little bit is if you've ever rented a DVD and they have like a behind the scenes making of the movie kind of thing, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm thinking about a little bit here. You know, like I'm always like my, my daughter, my oldest daughter's a Star Wars freak and she, <laughs> she, she'll watch every single documentary about how they made Star Wars. And when she gets to see the people that were doing the voices and the drawings and, and the, 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 the character development and all that kind of stuff, she just gets drawn in even more to the franchise. And I think this is kind of what you're talking about, right? Employees inside the company can be sharing kind of how the company does what the company does without revealing too many of the trade secrets to kind of draw people in to appreciate what the company is producing. Is that somewhat accurate? That's somewhat accurate, but then you, could, you can also take a different angle, right? If you look at Zappos, and, you know, at any point, there's, there's also a reactive component there. If I purchase shoes from, Zappel, from, from, from Zappos and they, they are late or they don't come on time or they're never delivered and I tweet it, I will have the whole entire company respond asking how they can help. If you follow any Zappos employee on, within social media, they are talking all the time about the culture, about the business, about uh, shoes, about the business model. And so it's not just being proactive, but there's also a reactive element that, that I think also influences behavior because if that happens to me and I get helped by, by you know, a Zappos employee, I'm most likely going to buy again. And I have done that in the past. Okay, so we've talked about um, Intel and we've talked about Red Bull. And obviously, each of them are big. Uh, consu- one's a consumer and one's a B two B company. Now, you said you also had a small business example. Yeah, there's a really small company here in San Francisco called Visage, and what they do is they do uh, enterprise mobility software. And the company's less than fifty people, I think. Uh, it's about fifty. They could have grown since I last talked to them. And you know, they have a very interesting uh, point of view when it comes to enterprise mobility. 
right? Which is this idea of, of, of mobile, the mobile workforce being, you know, collaborating and, and always being on the go. They have software that manage that entire supply chain and they don't have a huge marketing department. They don't have a huge budget. They don't to, to um, hire agencies, right? But they have an interesting uh, blog, which is called Chief Mobility Officer. And if you explore the content in that blog, they don't talk about themselves. They don't talk about their business or products or service. They talk about enterprise mobility. And they have discussions on how do we solve the technical challenges around the enterprise mobility challenge. And they, they have writers who are employees. They have third-party writers who are contributors to their content, who are creating content, I want to say, three, or four, three to five times a week, uh, long-form content supplemented by tweets and status updates and things like that, but really telling a significant brand story, which is affecting the way that consumers view them as a business. They're solving problems. They're not, they're not you know, sharing corporate marketing babble. It's, it's value-added content. It's, it's helping even non-customers solve their own problems. And that's the way that brands need to think about it. In fact, Jay, Jay Bear wrote a book on that just a few months ago called Utility, right? It's about being helpful um, and providing con- uh, content and solutions for employ- uh, excuse me, customers um, whatever, in, in whatever area that they're looking for, whether it be search or within social media. Now, how did you spell that again? I mean, what was the spelling of that company's name? Visage, V-I-S-A-G-E. You know what I love about this example is that they are establishing thought leadership, right? Because they are they are essentially writing and producing content that is not necessarily tied to their product, but is probably along the way drawing people to their site. And this is a great example of someone who's essentially building a media outlet around a topic that their customers happen to be very passionately interested in. And it sounds to me as if that's a great way to deal with the fact that they don't have a big marketing department because, you know, they're going to be just attracting on a regular basis their ideal clients to them with the content that's being produced. Is that true? I, that is very true, Mike. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point, right? And it goes back to what I said earlier about the the so many social media marketers and brand marketers today forget about the power of long form content. This idea that corporate blogging is dead or, and I realize it's a, it's a challenge to get employees to write content. It's much easier to write 140 characters than it is a thousand word, you know, story or article. But the problem with, with that, and I think in, in the book I, I talk a lot about this, is that visual storytelling is important, right? We spend I don't know how much time per per day on our Facebook feed and on Twitter. Visual storytelling is important. It draws us in. But all of that content that we consume in Facebook, all of that content we consume on Twitter and Instagram and Vine will never show up in search. And we often forget that. And what long-form content does is it, it establishes that visibility so that when consumers are looking for content related to, let's say, for example, enterprise mobility, they actually find really good content that they're already in the market or already looking for. And what's really intriguing is if you start thinking about this, Michael, uh, Visage could actually find that their their media platform that they're building right now, their blog, their magazine, whatever you want to call it, could become so big that they actually begin to get the competition wanting to participate. 
And um, I mean, I've seen this happen with Social Media Examiner. And I know it happens with a lot of other places because once you kind of become the arbitrator of knowledge or the source where everyone goes to want to be fed, you know, or become the well, then all of a sudden um, the world is your oyster and you can mm-hmm. do frankly anything. And if you, tru- if you truly do think of this as a media outlet that happens to be owned by the company, really powerful and amazing alliances can be done if it's done right. And I think that's the magic of having your company become a media company. Now, some people listening right now might be saying, I don't know if my company has what it takes to become a media company. And I know you've written about some of the characteristics of a media company. Can we kind of explore that a little bit? How does somebody, you know, what are the characteristics that a business should have in place in order to know whether they've got the makings of building a media company? Well, I think there are five characteristics, and this comes from about nine months of research. It comes from my own experience. It comes from several interviews from media companies, traditional media companies like CNN and news outlets, and some brands like Red Bull. And so the five that I've identified are, are really self-explanatory, but let me, let me talk through them. The first one, which I think we've covered a little bit, Mike, at the very beginning of, the, of this podcast, was this idea of, of storytelling, right? Media companies tell really excellent stories. Uh, I mentioned Condé Nast. Uh, traditional news organizations also have um, their narrative. In some cases, you have certain uh, uh, news organizations who differentiate their narrative by you know, saying that they're fair and balanced and things like that. So that is their narrative. That is the way that they approach the news. That is their story. Okay, so that is one characteristic. The first char- the second characteristic is content. Um, there's been study after study after study that shows that content is the number one challenge for brands today. What media companies are is they are content machines. They are always on. It doesn't matter what time or day it is or what the hour. They are distributing content day in and day out. In fact, the New York Times produces, I believe, 2,500 articles every single day. That doesn't include the two to 400 blog posts that supplement those articles. That's every single day, right? And some, of, some clients argue that I can't produce one blog post a week. So there has to be a shift in, in attitude. There has to be an operational element to support that, which I do talk about in the book. The third, op- the third characteristic is relevance. Media companies do not provide content that's not relevant. It's always relevant to someone somewhere. And in many times, it's real time. Uh, if you think about uh, you know, like traditional news organizations, right? They are oh, yeah. in the business of providing real-time updates. Sometimes they, they, they bite their tongues because they're, they're trying to share news that isn't necessarily true quite yet. But it's relevant to someone all the time. The fourth characteristic is that that content is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. When when the Boston bombings happened a few months ago, I was on I was on the on a flight to New York, and when I landed, I checked my Facebook feed and I saw all these comments about Boston Marathon, and I, there was no context, so I didn't know actually what happened. So I I Googled Boston tragedy, and I found the Boston.com. I found all these media outlets who were reporting in real time long-form content, then I was able to get a more a complete view of what happened at the marathon. And that their content is ubiquitous. It dominates the search engines, and it's shared across all of the major social platforms. 
The fifth characteristic, and this is the most challenging for companies today, it's this idea that media companies are agile. They are what I call content organizations. They have workflows that facilitate the entire content supply chain, meaning when there's an idea from the time that, that, that story is produced and distributed and then integrated into some type of paid or earned or owned media, the workflow that facilitates that entire process, media companies have that down pat. They have software, they have editors, they have approvers, they have all of these, these controls so that the story is consistent across all those channels and that's what's pumping and feeding that content engine every single day. You know, while you were mentioning these five uh, uh, class categories, storytelling, content, relevance, ubiquitous, and agile, one company popped into my head that I think many of the listeners may be familiar with, and that's HubSpot. Those guys are content machines. I don't know if, I don't know if you track what they're doing or not, but they've got huge teams behind the scenes that are constantly producing content. In some cases, you know, it's blog posts. In other cases, it's eBooks. And you know, because they make software that's designed to uh, help businesses and marketers whenever anything seems to be changing in the world of social, they're the ones that are coming out with ebooks really, really quickly. And HubSpot has gone through massive growth, and they really have done a great job of establishing thought leaders. As a matter of fact, I was at a, I was at a Content Marketing World, and they had two bloggers that they sent to the conference with the sole purpose of writing blog posts about what everybody was talking about and teaching about so they could help, you know, essentially feed great, valuable content to the prospects. Mm-hmm. Now, that, go ahead. I was going to say that's an excellent point. And uh, I know the guys over at HubSpot, and you're right. They, they do a fantastic job at creating content, at capturing email addresses. Um, I mean, they are, they are the, the role model that brands need to think about. You know, it, but I think the difference difference is is that HubSpot, as you said, they're in the business of providing software for just what they're doing, that content marketing, right. lead generation, things like that. But the more difficult piece of it for brands is that that may not necessarily be in the same space is identifying the right narrative that adds value to consumers, and that's not all and always about themselves. Well, that's a wonderful um, segue to it. My next question then, how do they determine what in the world? <laughs> I mean, because relevance is the key here, right? How do they determine what in the world um, they should focus on? That's a great question. I think there are several inputs that brands must consider as they think about their narrative. The first one is, and I think this is the most obvious one, is the brand positioning or the brand message, right? What is their what is their complete value proposition? Most companies today, that is their narrative, in social, and that's why they fail because consumers, um, and I think we all can agree to this, is that consumers reject pure brand messaging. But it is an input into what a narrative should be. Um, a few other inputs are the, the way that the media perceives the brand and how they talk about the brand. You know, if I if I if I work for BMW, um, does the media talk about the ultimate driving machine? How do they talk about my brand when they're writing stories in the Wall Street Journal? What about the community as well? When the community um, writes blog posts or status updates or tweets about my brand, is what they're saying in alignment to what I want them to say or how I want them to refer to our brand? 
Search is also an important input, right? So understanding the way uh, consumers are searching for my brand uh, and uh, customer support. What are people calling? So there's several different inputs. There's like 10 of them, which I talk about in the book. But once you understand all of these inputs, then the narrative, right, the right story that you want to tell can come to life. And then you can figure out, well, where do we want to tell these stories? Do we tell it in Facebook or what about blogs or what about Twitter and YouTube and all these different social media platforms? Do we have different kind of storylines in each platform? What, you know, do we create a, a sole customer support Twitter account? These are all things that you would, would want to do after you figure out what your narrative is. Too many times today companies are, doing, are just jumping into Twitter first without understanding what they want to say. For the small businesses that are listening right now and might be thinking, oh my gosh, this is totally beyond my reach, what do you want to say to them? You know, understanding your audience, I think, is the number one point, right? It's, it's understanding what are they interested in when they're not necessarily talking about your brand, right? And there's tools today, and they're not that expensive, um, that you can use to identify audience interests and understanding their complete social graph. And that'll give you insight into what kind of music they like, what kind of uh, sports teams they like, where they live. And by doing that, you can provide, I think, more relevancy and a kind of a twist into what your message is that they would uh, deem more important and relevant than if you didn't use that data. Now, you mentioned tools. I mean, one of the obvious things that comes to mind is doing like a survey monkey survey of your your list to kind of gather some of this intelligence. But are there other tools that are somehow um, able to just give you kind of a high-level analysis of, for example, your Facebook fans or something along those lines and what their interests are? Sure. Well, you know what's interesting, Mike, is when I was at your conference last year, earlier this year, I had met someone who was a great guy, and we've used his tool since I met him. And the company's called Demographics Pro. And what they do is they do a complete analysis for like a couple hundred bucks. They will do a complete analysis of your Twitter followers and tell you what other brands they follow, where they shop, where they eat, where they've checked in, average age, average income. And the data is pretty solid. We've used it to deliver content strategies for clients. There's another firm called Wisdom, the Wisdom app, which does a, a very similar thing in Facebook. It'll tell you of your fans what percent um, like sports, NASCAR, NFL, what type of music they like. Is it hip-hop? Is it country? So that really does give a, a kind of a complete 360-degree view of your consumers and allows you to provide more relevant content. Now, um, people that are listening right now you know, might be convinced, okay, you, you've sold me. I believe that I need to uh, develop my company into thinking like a media company in order to grow a platform. And I'm going to go buy your book. But what's the first thing that I need to think about? Like I'm sitting here at the table right now with a blank piece of paper and a pen in my hand. You know, what do I need to start with? Like, where do I start at ground zero to try to build this thing? Well, the way that I define content strategy is very simple. Um, and that's where that you, that's where your brand, if you're listening, needs to start. It's defining your content strategy. And there's three points to, to consider. The first one is, what is it that you want to say? The second piece is, how do you want to say it? And the third is, where do you want to say it? So going back to number one, it's the narrative. It's your story. Number two, how? It's your tone of voice. Do you want to enable customers and employees to help tell your brand story? 
And then the where you want to say it is really focused on mapping your narrative to specific online channels. That is the last piece of the process. The, the last thing you want to do is, is jump into some type of communication channel, whether it be social or other, without first identifying what your narrative is, what your story is. Once you have the story, then you can figure out how you want to say it. Then you can figure out where you want to say it based on the resources that you have, based on what makes the most sense. And as I said, too many companies start with number three and, and jump into Twitter without understanding what it is they want to say first. And you know what? I guess what I'm hearing from you is you can become a media company using Facebook, using Twitter, using YouTube, or using a blog. So you don't have to necessarily just develop a blog out of scratch, right? You can apply this stuff that we're talking about to all the social channels that you're already actively on and, and in many regards control your destiny. Is that right? That is completely true. Okay. Um, one last question. Some people listening might right now might be thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know if we have anybody in house to be able to do this kind of stuff. Do you recommend that they hire journalists? Do you recommend that they do some sort of an audit in house? I mean, how do people go from, you know, not having anything in house or do you recommend they hire firms that specialize in this kind of stuff to help them get off the ground? That's a great question, Mike. And I think that that is a, a huge challenge is the resources side of it. A lot of companies don't have the resources to, to hire an agency to do this for them. And the great news is, is that there are platforms out there today, and, and I'll name two of them. The first one is Contently, and the second one is eByline. And the way it works is they have a network of journalists and bloggers and influencers. And all you do is you, you, you write a creative brief or a brief and people and you hire writers to write content on your behalf. If you go to the American Express Open Forum uh, and look at all of that content from journal freelance journalists and influencers, some of my friends right there, um, they've all been been acquired through the Contently platform. And so that's a great opportunity to get highly credible, highly influential writers who are good writers to write about an event or to write about a point of view or a product. Um, and at the same time, you want to do an audit, as you said, internally to say, okay, who internally has the bandwidth to write on our behalf? Who wants to write on our behalf? Who already has some type of social footprint that we can leverage? Um, and then have a combination of employees and third-party journalists. So those two resources were contently, just like it sounds, right? Content with an L-Y on the end. and then Correct. E, and then E-byline. Yes. Awesome. Well, I'm sure, Michael, that a lot of people listening right now, they're starting to say, okay, I think I might be able to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where can folks discover more about you and your new book titled Your Brand, The Next Media Company? you have any particular websites you want to send them to? Sure. I mean, my website, it's uh, Britopian.com. That's B-R-I-T-O. P-I-A-N. That's also me on Twitter. Um, and the book is, uh, it, it, it's, you can find the book on that website or I have a book site itself. Uh, it's, it's thenextmedia.co. And there's a lot of really good information. I give free downloads of each chapter. There's some great interviews, some great videos. So um, you can actually try before you buy <laughs> and get that. a lot more information. 
Brilliant. Michael Brito, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to explore this very important topic. And I'm, I'm excited about where the future is for a lot of businesses that are listening right now. And if you are listening right now or in the future and you listen to Michael's advice and, and you do something kind of exciting, be sure to let us know. Michael, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, I hope you got a lot of insight out of today's interview and today's podcast. If there's anything that you missed, you can catch the show notes at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 63. That's a place where you can go and you can leave your comments and really study everything that we talked about in today's podcast. Also, if you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it, can you do me a favor and visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash love? What that does is it populates a tweet into your Twitter stream that basically says you recommend the podcast. This does bring us to the end of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I hope to see you next week, and may you make the absolute best out of your day, and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.